All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, before we jump into this episode, super excited about our newest sponsor, Reserve. Big shout out to Reserve. They are the easiest way to design, deploy, and govern stable coins backed by a diverse set of assets with access to DeFi yield and insurance. If you don't know Reserve, we're super excited about them here at Bell Curve. You'll hear more about them later in the show. I'm curious to get both your takes on how you think about returning capital to shareholders, and are we, are we asking these protocols to do it at an appropriate time? Well, so that fixation is that penny pinching mentality, right? Of like, you got to give me my money back now when they should actually most be reinvesting it in the opportunity, right? And so that's like one of the perverse things I think of like, we could just call it more junior management or more short-sighted management. Buddy, we got a big episode here coming with uh, Chris Berninski and Fernando Martinelli at Balancer. This was a really good one. Really, I, I want to do more of these conversations where we have like a builder and an investor here. I think uh, Fernando was able to go really deep on specific topics. And then Chris is able to zoom out and be like across a bunch of different protocols in the industry. This is what folks are doing. It's a good combination. We probably could have gone a little bit more down the route of what's the difference of uh, you know capital allocation in Dow land versus traditional startup land. But I think we answered a lot of those questions. So to give you all a primer on why we wanted... Uh, Fernando and Chris on this, we wanted the perspective of both an operator in in DAOs and also an investor to talk about building a DAO through the lens of capital allocation. And I think we we kind of started and looked at this looked at the whole episode through that lens, but then we really got into some pretty interesting discussions around uh, what's the right way for DAOs to allocate their their treasury, how should insider rounds be uh, treated and priced within crypto, uh, like what is yield farming and mechanism going to design look like in in the future for crypto. And just, just a whole bunch of, of really interesting stuff. So, yeah, I thought this was actually one of my favorite conversations of the season. Yeah, me too. I mean, these are both guys who have seen multiple cycles and have just uh, are able to zoom out a little bit. Shall we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. See you on the other side. All right, guys. Welcome to uh, another episode of Bell Curve here. We've got Fernando Martinelli, uh, I believe, at Balance for Labs, and then uh, Chris Berninski. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, so thank you both for joining. Yeah, you know, part of the reason for uh, having the two of you on here is we wanted to get sort of a someone who's in the trenches and kind of an operator in a in a DAO environment and actually an investor as well because, you know, we wanted to talk about this through the lens of basically how to effectively allocate capital in in DAO world and what are the similarities between allocating capital in a company sort of setting and then how it might differ a little bit in a in a crypto native setting. And Fernando, I hope it's okay if we use you know, balancer is sort of an example here. And maybe we can use exact uh, balancer in many ways is like a jumping off point uh, and then kind of go down a whole bunch of different threads throughout the course of the conversation. So maybe we could actually just start with kind of like the history of balancer, like what was ultimately the vision? You know, what does it look like today? And then if you had to almost describe balancer, the business, uh, I would love to get like an understanding of your, your revenue and, and cost drivers and all that sort of thing. Sure. So, um, I kind of uh, started looking into crypto early on and uh, really liked the idea of separating money from state and all that Bitcoin kind of brought us. I uh, was very fascinated by Ethereum, this idea of uh, smart contracts and, and smart money. Um, what, what really kind of caught my attention was the possibility of creating uh, 
stable coins, right? Um, the idea of having uh, a way to hold crypto that would not go up by 10% and down by 30% uh, overnight. I think this was um, a, a prerequisite and still is for mass adoption. And Ethereum kind of uh, gave us that opportunity. So I got involved with uh, MakerDAO very early on because they were the kind of the first guys really exploring that. And uh, I, I had some MKR back then and some ETH and some DAI. Um, and I, have, I had this portfolio that I didn't want to kind of just leave alone and um, overnight again, like be overexposed to MKR because it went up a lot in value. And it wasn't very, um, very liquid, liquid either. So that, that kind of happened at the same time where we were having those conversations about AMMs and X times Y equals K. And I realized that X times Y equals K, what it does um, beyond being like enabling people to, to exchange with that pool. From the LP side uh, standpoint, it, it kind of uh, rebalances continuously, constantly your, your money so that it's always 50% on each of the, of the, of the sides, each of the, the coins. Um, so I, I thought to myself, why does it have to be just a 50-50? Uh, and two tokens, why can't it be like a, a basket, like an index fund, where I know I I'll always have 30% like of my assets um, in DAI and 20 in, in MKR and the rest in ETH. So I went through like all this kind of mathematical um, design to, to come up with Balancer and that, that's Balancer V1. It enables you to like create an index fund where you pretty much like turn it upside down instead of charging LPs to be part of the index fund, which is what TradFi does. It actually gives LPs um, fees because people who are interacting, trading with, with the index fund, with the pool, they're actually paying a spread, which is then accumulating. We all know that from uh, Uniswap. So Balancer is uh, a lot more flexible. So Balancer V1 is, is that. And we realized that we needed some more flexibility for some use cases. Um, a team forked us and created like a, a way to use most of the coins that are in a pool to lend them out to a lending protocol to make it more um, like more um, efficient, more capital efficient. And uh, another team did something else. And we, we had Curve launched with a, another type of invariant, with the, which doesn't keep the percentages, but it kind of optimizes for liquidity around price one. We realized that like there's so many things that can still be created around uh, AMMs that we wanted to like create a platform, like infrastructure for other people to come up with all those like crazy and amazing ideas. Uh, so we didn't want to be opinionated. So we created Balancer V2. Balancer V2 is really like an architecture that enables anyone to create their own pools, uh, pool types with their own invariants. Um, and they use this common vault, which holds all the tokens from all the pools. It does a lot of like optimization of gas costs. It's very secure. So we spend a lot of money and time like making sure that this vault is not, cannot be corrupted. So what it does is really, it allows teams like Gyroscope and so many others that are using Balancer V2 to very quickly innovate on top of um, like Balancer V2 doing their own like new AMM. So if they had to do their own AMM from scratch, they would have to spend a lot of time and money in things that we already did, right? So we make it so that they can just plug their idea, their invariant into our vault in a way that actually shares um, like all the liquidity from audit pool types that are also using the same vault. 
So it, it's not really commingled money, like each or tokens, each one belongs to their different pools, but it makes it very efficient to do like batch swaps. So you trade with one pool that trades with another one. Uh, and at the end, the vault only sends the, the net pot, like the net tokens uh, to the user who's trading and gets the, the ones that are trading in back. So it's a very efficient way to, um, to do batch swaps and multi hops. So this is pretty much Balancer, Balancer V2 and, and how we're kind of trying to further the ecosystem and, and help other teams. Like we like to say that the success of Balancer is the success of those building on top of us. So we kind of uh, migrated a, a little bit from the early vision of like being uh, an end user application to being infrastructure for devs uh, and other protocols that are then themselves going to interact with end users. The idea is for Balancer to be really like this piece of infrastructure that's um, self-sustaining. So we, we don't want to be um, injecting money from investors or from um, yeah people who are buying tokens from the DAO. We really want to make sure that the protocol generates revenues because it's used. People like are spending money to use it. Um, and, and then like the DAO decides how to use those revenues, which service providers it, it wants to, um, to fund that are actually like um, working for uh, for the for the protocol. So it's really about finding different ways because there's it's so generic, it's so kind of um, uh, open to to like different ways of using Balancer is very multifaceted. There are different ways to charge protocol um, fees, and the the most obvious one is swap fees, which Uniswap um, is kind of always on the verge of uh, turning on their, their switch and other protocols from, from the beginning already had their switch uh, on like curve. So that's kind of the, the, the first type of uh, revenue generation um, for the protocol. The second one that we, we believe in the third one, maybe there's, there's others coming, but um, something that's very typical to balancer is the, the fact that we are focusing on having you bearing tokens assets on balancer. So we, we all like, we want all the tokens um, in, in, in the vault to be generating yield passively, like instead of uh, ETH wrapped stake teeth, instead of uh, BAO wrapped a BAO, whatever lending protocols out there. Uh, and we have a very kind of uh, ingenious architecture for that with uh, uh, linear pools and boosted pools that I can talk more about. But um, yeah, so the idea is, and, that, and, and for those, we can charge a, a little bit of the yield. So we don't we don't need to only charge swap fees and probably you, you're all seeing that swap fees is a race to the bottom, like more and more protocols are cutting their fees and you see Uniswap launching new fee tiers to undercut curve and then, and then Dodo not charging any fees for some pools. So there, there is like a clear race to the bottom and Balancer is kind of uh, putting itself outside of this um, race to the bottom by finding different and, and creative ways of, of like charging fees where it's really adding value like uh, you generation. There's also like the, the use case of asset management, uh, treasury management that Balancer does where you can charge an AUM fee. Like you use Balancer to rebalance your, your portfolio or your treasury. Balancer takes a small, uh, small cut. And, and that's not even being built by Balancer. There's like partners building that uh, like index co-op with index funds and, and others. So yeah, so that that's kind of the the business the way I see it, and I'm just one of the participants. Like we have a, an amazing community, people stepping up from the community, like really leading those conversations. It's, it's not me anymore; it was me in the beginning, but more and more, like it's really getting very decentralized, and uh, it's me stepping back and seeing things happening. So yeah, that that's more or less the the business of of, of the protocol. 
So thanks for that. There's a lot to unpack there, Fernando. Uh, and maybe, Chris, I can, I can tag you in here because I think maybe the, the two ways that I'd like to unpack that is one, you know, when you think about where you are in the life cycle of a company, especially a startup, I think that determines like when you want to start basically showing profitability or really extracting cash flow. And then there's also kind of fee preference, right? Which is like, do you charge a fee? Like let's use like an RIA or something like that. You could charge like a flat fee or you could take like a percentage of AUM. So there's kind of like where you are in the life cycle of a company. And then there's also like how comfortable the VCs and investors are with subsidizing that product. And then there's also like fee preference and how that's going to express itself in different marketplaces. So maybe Chris, I don't know, as, as a VC or like a longtime investor in this space, uh, I think if we were having a conversation in sort of Web2 land and you had a, I know Balancer is one of the older protocols, but if you were talking to like a three or four year old startup, you might be saying, well, hold on a second. Like you guys are still in growth mode and you don't need to necessarily be charging fees from your users yet at this point because we're all trying to capture market share. So I'd, I'd be curious, Chris, about what your sort of, um, how you kind of think about uh, that whole argument in, in where we are in uh, crypto right now. I'd start with, the fact that I, so I don't think of Balancer as a company, right? It's very much a protocol that's capitalized by a native crypto asset and it's supported by a company. Um, and the reason I want to draw that delineation is, well, there are some shared tenets of like how a company operates over the long run and how a protocol operates over the long run. Um, like the Balancer team could walk away and um, the Balancer protocol would continue working on Ethereum. Right. And so like everything, the, the, the cost structure of, of um, improving, say, the, um, the utility of the balancer protocol and, you know, increasing awareness of the balancer protocol and all those things, that's for evolution of the balancer protocol. Whereas like the balancer protocol could be just left to ossify. Everyone could walk away and it would continue to operate on Ethereum um, and basically the user would be paying for the marginal use of the protocol. And that's very different from a company, right? Like when everyone from a company walks away, the service of the company shuts down. And I think that's like part of the key for people to really understand how these things get quite powerful. Um, that said, to sustain people that are going to work on the evolution of a protocol um, and also potentially to um, have a crypto asset that accrues value over time, you do have to start to think about the you know, inflows versus the outflows of cash or resources, right? And so um, I would say that for teams that are in the growth phase, like the, the playbook over the last couple of decades, I would say, has been just like continually reinvest everything that you can into growth um, and you know, raise dilutive venture funding um, to juice, you know, your treasury even more or your balance sheet even more to, you know, turbocharge that growth. I would say that um, that that has also largely applied to crypto protocols. Crypto protocols have had the further benefit of being able to create their own programmatic capital, right? The the native crypto asset, BAL, and the in the case of um, Balancer or Uni, in the case of Uniswap, um, and that has gone towards the balance sheet or treasury of, of the protocol. But I think that like one thing that, that happens and why this conversation is interesting in the depths of the current bear market is um, 
people get really spendy and they don't really care in bull markets. And, and I'm not so much talking about the protocols as well, well, like everyone spends too much money, I would say in the bull market and, and very few people care all that much about the reality of the economics. But then crypto is so cyclical and so boom bust that when we're in the bear markets, you have a lot of angry people who just want to make their money back in some way. Right. Um, and then they're focused on like, oh, well, why aren't you giving me money back? Or like, you know, I see these fees, like you have to give that back to me. And the other thing is it's it's an open discourse, right? Like a big difference between a DAO and a company is a company um, is very hierarchical and um, it's closed to, to, to discourse, at least a startup company, right? They're basically talking with their, their core customers, their investors, the team, but um, it's pretty sterile, I would say, as compared to a DAO has all these these vectors for conversation and is, you know, chaotic but extremely biodiverse, right? And so then, like, you're going to get all these viewpoints more and you're going to hear a lot from the people who, you know, want the protocol to stop reinvesting in its growth solely for their own personal interest to try and get, you know, some money back. So um, I would say that I believe in working with each team for, you know, what their medium to long-term goals are. And in the case of something like Balancer, you know, Balancer aims to, to, to become a foundational protocol with strong independent dependence where a bunch of teams are building on top of it. And so I see Balancer as investing in, you know, the dev tooling, in the true decentralization of its community, so that all these different teams that are building on it can be supported by many leaders, not just the founders, right? And then um, what Bao chooses to do with the fee over time is, is going to always be an important conversation. But I don't think, um, even though, you know, parts of the community are focused on it right now, I don't think it's necessarily the key to uh, longer term success. We have to like get through some things first. And then like once you're turning on that extraction or that fee mechanism, I think the protocol will be at later stage just as companies that get to later stage start, you know, throwing off dividends. I want to I want to just bookmark that to, to come back to later this idea that people feel like they're owed something and there's like these discussions about cash flowing protocols or protocols that return parts of the treasury to the use the token holders i definitely want to put a bookmark and, and get to that but i'd love to get maybe both of your perspectives as well on the preference that's going to emerge in this market for fee extraction so to use the example right like people people already say this public market analysts say this about coinbase all the time well, you know, fees for brokers have basically brokerages have gone to zero over a period of time. That doesn't mean that brokerages have stopped extracting fees from markets. They haven't. They just do it in a slightly less visible way, which is payment for order flow, right? Very similar kind of people debate a lot on what's the right way to, to pay financial uh, wealth managers, right? Uh, RIAs. And there's a lot of good reason why it should be a percentage of AUM, but there's also pretty good reasons why it shouldn't actually necessarily be that as well. There are some weird incentives that arise, but ultimately it's a question of uh, preference from the standpoint of the customer or the user. How do you see that evolving in crypto markets? Do you think it's a relatively similar thing where the upfront fee kind of goes to zero and maybe it's monetized through MEV or something else, but how do you guys see uh, sort of fee preferences playing out? 
So I, I was going to mention exactly that, Michael. I think there's like the, the protocol decisions in terms of um, like in, inside the protocol, how you charge fees and are, is it AUM, is it swap fees, is it yield bearing fees? And there's a layer maybe below that, which is what is the consensus layer, like the blockchain that's being used for that. And we know that Ethereum is amazing, but um, has a lot of MEV. And there's a, a lot of discussions and recently Dan Elitzer published a very nice article about like Unichain and how this is something that he thinks is inevitable. Um, like in how much money today, like before miners now validators are, are, are kind of taking um, from users and a protocol and, and how having like a, an app chain can, can change that and, and kind of um, forward the the fees or what would be going to validators to to users of the protocol and, and uh, token holders so um i i'd say that for balancer being such a kind of a, a complex protocol that touches many different uh use cases and, and other protocols it's very hard for us to go to um, an app chain before there's very good kind of composability and cross-chain messaging communication um, because we will really rely on um, atomicity and composability. So I, I do think that it's a, it's a trade-off, like how much goes to validators, how much goes to LPs in, in the case of AMMs, how much goes to token holders that are maybe passively kind of just tagging along uh, with, with the protocols without actually generating a lot of value. Um, I, I think there's going to be a lot of discovery and, and um, I'm curious to hear Chris's opinion on that as he usually foresees things really well, uh, high precision. Well, I'll do my best. I, I guess the, the thing I disagree with about this idea that like fees go to zero is that creation is not costless. And so in order for fees to go to zero, creation needs to become costless. And the only place that I see creation becoming costless is if you have, you know, general purpose AI or whatever, GPT, you know, is producing protocols at like near zero marginal cost. And it doesn't have an ego and, you know, it just wants to provide free services to the world and it just wants to, well, maybe it's ego as it wants to outcompete all the puny humans. I don't know. But until creation is costless, there will always be fees that are extracted. And there won't be infinite creation because we're limited in our, the, like the number of humans and our capacities and our time. And so like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of AMMs or there's a lot of brokerages like Coinbase, but there's not infinite, right? And there's actually like a relatively limited number that are a great UX, very trustworthy, you know, high brand value to the user such that the user is willing to pay for that service. And like, as an example, you know, I've been in this space for a long time now and I still like, I pay to use some like very high end services where I have to pay like a monthly fee or whatever. Um, but like, it's, it's as high security as I could hope for while still having like a customer service representative or someone that I can just call if I'm having issues. And I do it because, you know, I'm willing to pay that amount of money just for like the ease of use, the peace of mind, the security, all those things. And so um, that's say on the company side, on the protocol side, I, I basically think that like 
protocols will charge the market-based fee and everyone will kind of be undercutting each other. And like you were saying, Michael, it's like, okay, you'll start with the obvious one and you'll all undercut each other down to like as low of a marginal fee rate as you all, as everyone can tolerate while sustaining their operations. And then someone else will come up with some other innovation that will be like a sneakier fee. And then we'll get to the bottom of that. And so like, you never actually get to zero because there's also, just as there's technological innovation, there's economic innovation, which includes fee innovation. Um, and the only place all that goes to zero would take me back to the start, which is, you know, costless creation. Let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, and Fernando, I'd love to get your thoughts, because I think in many ways the, what it, the bellwether or the forward-looking indicator here is like the Uniswap fee switch, which there's been an enormous amount of debate around, right? And there are kind of like several schools of thought on it, which is Uniswap is, uh, you know, in many ways is a leader, right? In terms of the liquidity that they have on the platform today, right? The, so it might not actually be an enormous impact. Let's test the fee switch on a couple of different pools. I'm really sorry, by the way, if you can hear noise here, they're doing construction right outside my window. Hope that's not too loud. Um, then there's, there's kind of another school of thought, which is, look, like we were talking about fees on the upfront fees of a fee switch are going to go down to zero over a period of time. Really, what we can do is there's a lot of opportunity on MEV. So I didn't read the Daniel Elitzer piece, but really another way that we could do is, hey, there are all these ETH validators which are extracting value here. We should have our own chain with our own validators. And then instead of charging users upfront, what we can do is just order those transactions underneath the surface or, or kind of over here in the mempool and extract fees that way based on front running or back running or, or whatever, uh, you know, whatever we want to call MEV these days. Do you have like an idea of, of how that ultimately ends up playing out? Or are we just going to have to kind of wait for the market to decide and users to decide what their preference ultimately is? So like MEV is the sneaky fee or like it's the next fee pathway, right? So the transaction fee is the explicit fee and MEV is the implicit fee that unless you're an informed user, you don't really know about. And so like we're seeing pressure on explicit fees. If you're deep within the MEV market, that's changed a lot too. Like, you know, the players have professionalized significantly within Ethereum. You're starting to have, you know, good exploration of MEV and some of the other ecosystems such as Cosmos and Solana. Um, and so not as professionalized as Ethereum, but so like that implicit fee within Ethereum already has become much more competitive. Um, but I, I guess I, um, Perhaps you could claim that there, there will be some type of inverse relationship with the more you decrease the explicit fee, the more the, the harder people will work to extract as much as they can from the implicit fee. Um, and um, that said, the implicit fee, that MEV marketplace is just going to get more and more competitive. Um, and so, like, I expect that we end up paying, um, like, the, the equilibrium is that like at zero percent um, at, at, at a zero percent you know call it APR let, let's just take staking for a moment right if you look at like your yield off of eth okay so that yield is coming off of um, inflation but also transaction fees plus MEV so um, if you if you start to if you set aside the inflation for a moment, um, the, 
because inflation is like if everyone's staking, you're, you're actually just all staying at the same percent ownership of the network. So you kind of just run in place. And so then like the true, you know, uh, yield creation is from transaction fees and MEV. And I kind of think that that at like a perfect competition place starts to just hit the cost um, for the validators to run the infrastructure. Right. And like at a minimum, that needs to, to happen because otherwise the validators will start shutting down. Right. Or like it's not profitable for them to run. And this is where like a validator is a company that supports a protocol. Right. And so the, the validator has to operate profitably to sustain its operations. Um, and then the protocol is reliant upon there being enough validators um, to perform those operations. And so this is, again, where like I think we'll have market based dynamics where like people will have to accept that there will be forms of fee extraction because this stuff isn't free. Chris, in your mind, should, should that MEV accrue to be internalized to uni holders and validators or to the, to the ETH holders and validators? Or I guess separately put, like, what, what do you think about, the uni, about Dan's Unichain thesis there? So, so I didn't read Dan's Unichain thesis. I guess I've been spending more time understanding the Cosmos MEV ecosystem because I think it's slightly, it's slightly, it, it's it's more where the space is going, I guess. And um, what I'm what I'm coming to understand about Cosmos MEV is that each app chain or sector specific chain has its own preferences and value sets. And so if you look at something like Osmosis, they're they're pushing some updates where they're going to uh, slash you if you perform sandwiching attacks, as an example. And so like they're going to protect their users and their, their users and their token holders will ratify some of these things that align with their value sets. That will decrease the profitability of a validator who wants to perform sandwich attacks, right? But then if you're a validator who wants to perform those attacks or whatever, you might find another app chain or sector specific chain within Cosmos that will allow you to perform those types of attacks. And so you'll start having um, validators that are like the, the value set or the chain of value will align like through the community better, I think, from like, the user's preferences to the token holder's preferences, and there's large overlap there to what the devs implement to what the validators run. Um, and so I think that like uni holders or, or, or users will only want to pay for things that they can also benefit from, if that makes sense. And, and maybe that's where Dan went, went in his uni chain thesis. Um, but like the way I would think of it is like, um, yeah, I'm willing to pay and I'm willing to get extracted from if I'm like a big time uni user, if I'm also like at the same time getting the rebate, right, because I'm staking uni or whatever it might be. And so for me, if I'm active as a prosumer, right, on the on the production side and the consumption side, then I'm either net zero or positive um, in in how I perform. Like that, that's the whole, I think... Um idea of liquidity mining and, and distributing tokens and airdrops like what, what Chris just mentioned is super important like you you being on both sides um, kind of align the aligns the incentives much better so you um, if there is a uni chain or, or a bow chain in the future 
um, and if you have a lot of people who are using the protocol, but they are also staking or there are VE BAL holders in our case, our tokenomics has uh, this idea of locking for, for a year or, or less. Um, you have like those people aligned, then you don't have like two different groups like in the tug of war, like fighting toward like who gets um, less fees. And, and then there's this, this race at the bottom. Just wanted to add that. hundred um... percent. Maybe that's like, you know, talking about yield farming and airdrops and all that sort of stuff. Maybe that would be this would be a good part of the discussion to sort of transition into capital allocation decisions, which is really what, uh, you know, an executive, the CEO kind of has to make that decision, right? It's a little bit different in the land of, of DAOs and crypto. But, um, you know, if you were to take a look at like a budget for a startup or something, like a startup company, it would look very different than when you kind of look at token allocation uh, distributions like how they look for for crypto uh, protocols so I'd love to sort of get your thoughts on like what are what is a typical I don't know what are the major buckets of kind of spend for a protocol and how would that look different uh, from from a company and then maybe we can get into like yield farming and airdrops and those sorts of things Chris will have the breadth and uh, he knows so many teams invest in, in so many different uh kind of uh, networks and everything so I, i'm kind of gonna gonna give the like you said michael the picture uh, at balancer and then chris can expand that and, and generalize so I, I think there's a a lot of areas that are similar for uh, a protocol um compared to a startup maybe the different and, and like we're really more in, in the tech startup world where most of the costs um, of a protocol go or, or the investments go towards um, engineers and people creating adding value creating code open source and really uh, making making new things that people like to use and there's all sorts of kind of um, necessary supportive um, things like uh, you need you need a community manager you need to make sure people are being uh, listened to you need to um, have people who create a, a front end, and, and that's also technical, but in, in a different way. So you have also to make sure that people can use your protocol. So there's the SDK side of things where, where devs kind of uh, connect to your to your protocol and, and can build on top of that. So there, in, in a lot of ways, there's uh, similarities between startup tech startups and, and protocols. And I think the, the biggest difference difference, Michael, is, is what you said, like how, how those things are decided, right? So at the very beginning, Balancer Labs, which is the company I'm, I'm the CEO of, uh, we were doing a lot, like all these things, right, at the, at the very beginning. And it was always in our roadmap to be as decentralized as possible in order to achieve that kind of a really amazing state that Chris mentioned, like if we just all like disappear, the protocol will still be working um, and, and, and kind of have this independent dependence that make sure that if one fails or one team like just, just gets, I don't know, dismayed or, or wants to do something else, the protocol will still have a lot of people working and, and adding value to that. Uh, so at the beginning, Balancer Labs was doing lots of things. Um, and now Balancer Labs is just focusing on code and, and SDK and smart contracts. And we have now this kind of uh, framework of uh, service providers who come to our forum, who say who they are, what they want to do, like how they want to add value to the protocol and how they want to be compensated for that. So now any marketing that's done is done through service providers. Balancer Labs doesn't touch that anymore. Uh, any yeah, partnerships is done by Balancer Maxis, a team of like community, like 
core guys who have been around since the beginning. So yeah, it, it's, it's been more and more like a, 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 an ecosystem really of companies and entities and even some individual contributors that are anon, which you don't really see in, uh, in, in traditional companies and in tech startups. Uh, so it, it's, it's really becoming this idea of like um, lots of different entities, anons and, and whatnot and, and companies that are then funded by the DAO and the DAO is really a forum. A lot of people who have uh, some, some like trust in them that have been around for a long time and then how uh, that's how decisions are, are made. Um, Chris, if you want to chime in on like how this yeah. is done different, yeah. uh, differently in many other places. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, within crypto, it depends a lot upon um, stage and where in the stack the team is. Right. So um, how much infrastructure versus how much application. So how much dev facing versus how much consumer facing, um, you know, at the start, I, I, I totally agree with what Fernando said initially, which is like you need engineers to build the thing. Right. And so with a lot of teams that we work with, you know, four out of the first five hires are engineers or eight to nine of the first 10 hires are engineers. Um, and I would say that, like, pre-2017, you had a lot of, like, purely engineering teams with, like, people, maybe one business, one BD person. Um, 2017 started to change things um, with ICOs, and, like, people started to realize that, like, marketing and education and, like, these softer touch things were relevant. But I would say that 2017 was the start of changing things, and 2021 blew the door wide open uh, in terms of, uh, diversity of spend of treasury. And if you look at teams like um, Polygon, Solana, Avalanche, um, even to some extent Chainlink, though Chainlink is more of an uh, anomaly, I, I guess we go with Polygon, Solana, and Avalanche. They all um, had strong, like, well, yeah, let's, so they all had strong engineering teams, um, but complemented by a BD powerhouse. Right. And so if you went back in time, I would say that like the BD and marketing or being overly heavy on that used to be kind of a dirty tactic within crypto. And like crypto was nerdy enough and, um, you know, insular enough that it was kind of like, Ugh, like, why are you doing that? Whereas now it's gone more mainstream such that I see it as like a key tactic to understand and get right to effectively compete because not only are the users getting more mainstream, but the devs are getting more mainstream um, and everything needs to be a little bit more spoon fed and like is, is um, less in the wire cypherpunky. And so where I'm going, uh, where I'm heading to with this is like the, you know, past building the MVP, like once you have the MVP, the minimum viable protocol or product or pro product, like I, it's more important than it used to be in crypto to start to allocate to building out your BD team. And, and, you know, that's like the real use and like getting the integrations. And then from there, you know, on the marketing side, I think that it's highest leverage to market in bull markets, um, at least to consumers or users. Um, and then it's highest leverage in bear markets to uh, advertise to developers and like the core users and people that will be stickier. Um, and so I would encourage teams to adjust how they spend on, on marketing, depending on the face, because you can burn a lot of money to, you know, say the same group of people in a bear market, but you're not going to get that much change. Say if you're, if you're trying to 
pull in new consumers and you're like fighting uh, outgoing tide. So that's another thing I would um, encourage people to consider. I know everyone right now is going and looking at their runway and how much money they have. And so um, it's important to be focused. I, I saw a great, um, this is a bit of a tangent, but while we're on the topic, I think it's worth saying. I saw a great quote. It was from some Formula One driver, um, and it was from some investment conference. But it was basically that uh, this this driver was saying, you know, you can't pass 10 cars um, on the track in sunny weather, but you can when it's rainy and cloudy. And, you know, I think that's such an elegant way of, of revealing how important it is to be focused, determined, you know, 100% conviction all in in a bear market, because the landscape changes so much in a bear market and like the signal's really clear and like people can pay attention a lot better. And so things will rejigger. It's kind of like the tectonic plates move around very quickly. And then that is the foundation then for the next expansion. Um, and by the next expansion, like people are, you know, so borderline manic and like whatever that like they're not paying attention as much substance. And so like I'd say that the rate of innovation and the tectonic changes actually slow down. And it's really just people like talking about everything that happened and was built during the bear market mostly and like regurgitating that until, you know, then we get like a period of recomposition again. All right, everyone, brief break in the show here to talk about our newest sponsor, Reserve. So, you know, it's looking pretty bleak out there. It's not looking that great. We know what the one thing there's no bear market in? Stable coins. Stables, baby, stables. We love those stable coins, uh, which is why we're excited to partner with Reserve Protocol. So let's just start with the basics. What is Reserve? It's a self-service platform to build, deploy, and govern asset-backed stablecoins, uh, which can be integrated with DeFi or within the real economy. So the cool thing about Reserve is basically anyone out there permissionlessly can take any set of ERC-20 tokens and use them to collateralize their own stablecoin. So the long-term goal of the Reserve Protocol is to create a non-inflationary currency that is stable on a month-to-month -month basis, but also a century-to-century -century basis. In the meantime, though, they're open-sourcing design decisions for stablecoins, which is just super, super cool. I think one of the benefits that you get there is diversification. You hear it all the time in Finance 101, no such thing as a free lunch except for diversification. That's what you're getting with Reserve Protocol. Yeah. I've known the team for a long time. I spoke on a panel at SF Blockchain Week with Nevin, uh, with Joe Carlson and, and Alex Gladstein. Really impressive uh, growth that they've been able to have so far, right? Their premier stablecoin is RSV. It is backed by three other stables. It's already used by over half a million people transacting over $300 million a month. Right now, like Mike was talking about, anyone can go create a custom bespoke stablecoin using the reserve protocol. You can back it by maybe specific USD stables, or you can get uh, creative and you know maybe build something more complex like inversely correlated assets the branding governance and composition are completely up to you and lastly if there are any builders who are listening and you aren't interested in issuing your own stable coin what you can do is you can stake reserves governance token against your favorite stable strategies so what you're doing there is you're providing backstop insurance to stablecoin holders not riskless, right? Not financial advice. There's definitely some risk in doing that, but it does allow you to earn yield, especially now in crypto when there are so few ways to do that. It's definitely worth checking out. So at the very least, you should click the link at the bottom of this episode. Go check out the Reserve website. See all the cool stuff they're up to. Most importantly, though, click this link. You got to give Jason and me some credit here. Show right? us some love. Uh, Show us some love. Give us some love, baby. Give us some love. <laughs> all right. Now back to the show. Let's get into it. What do you think are... Um like lasting things that we will take from the last bull market, things like airdrops um, or like token swaps, like will the, will, what, what will last from the last uh, 
bull market that people will and protocols will implement in the next bull market? And like, what will, what are things that are just like, oh, that was like a 2020 bull market thing that won't happen again? Well, I think people are still, so like, so airdrops have been around for as long as crypto has been around. Um, and people are always iterating with them because the frustrating thing with airdrops, right, is like, how do you keep people from just immediately selling the token, right? And like, what are you actually accomplishing um, with with that tactic? And so things like what um, Across is doing, the bridging protocol within Ethereum, I quite like where they have an age of capital that increases your reward. And this is like a combination of like airdrop plus yield farming, but like where your reward starts going up the longer that your age of capital is. So like the longer you've gone between vesting periods, because presumably when you vest, you're vesting to sell. And so if you have no interest in selling, you'll just keep um, your, your age of capital going up such that you can achieve the highest rate of reward. So like, I think that airdrops are, are definitely here to stay and that's a good thing, but I think people need to put more time into the mechanism design uh, around loyalty. Right. And like, how do you get the um, the user behavior that you that you desire? Um, so that would be one that that sticks out to me. Of course, like yielding is um, is going to be another key one. And like where this is all going to go is um, yield markets where everyone's going to see what different assets yield. And that should be commensurate with the risk of being a participant that earns that yield, right? Um, and so like, we're at a very early stage right now in that, um, but like, just like people have, you know, have a hawk's eye on the traditional finance yield markets, I think over time, we're gonna get to that level of sophistication um, where people really understand like, okay, you should probably be getting higher yield if you're supporting some like thin application that has some risky crypto asset on some you know risky alt l1 um versus like if you're you know a validator within like ethereum or cosmos or solana or whatever it might be so i expect to see like uh i i guess more professionalization around what it means to be a yielding asset and less of the games of like oh my god this is like 250 million percent apr because it's you know a complete ponzi Sure, that'll come back somewhat, but I think people learn their lesson, too, of how unsustainable it is. Now, that said, I'm always surprised by how few people remember the lessons that they once learned. So, you know, uh, there'll be variants of that. But, like, on the important stuff, I, I think professionalization around yield, um, more stickiness around airdrops. The, the thing that I would love, and, and this is, you know, my PR training, of answering the question I, I wish I'd been asked versus the question I was actually asked. But um, <laughs> great question, Jason. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks, Jason. Break me off. Yeah, sure. <laughs> really nailed that question. <laughs> thanks for your no. shitty question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, it, it was a good question. Um, but uh, so I would love for people to think more about how they can compensate people who put in their time or their labor that don't have that much capital. Um, and so like most of the games thus far are still rewarding capital of some kind, even being like a miner within Bitcoin proof of work that requires 
the capital necessary to purchase the machine and so on. Now, it takes a lot of labor, too, to keep it running. Um, staking is more just pure capital and, and less labor. Um, and that's where, like, I think some of the proof of work arguments are valid. But, um, you know, a lot of airdrops or a, a lot of the mechanisms to distribute assets within crypto are still capital dependent. And the issue with that is, you know, the whole way through the capitalist system, capital begets capital, begets capital, begets capital. And so we see capitalism getting more and more concentrated or unequal. And I actually, I very much believe in capitalism as the best at scale coordination mechanism that we have. But I think for it to work optimally, it needs to be better distributed. And I see crypto as society's best tool currently to programmatically distribute capital to labor. And so like more ways that people can think of like uh, compensating people directly for their time and allowing people who don't have much capital to earn their way into capital, um, the better. I also think that like that in part relies upon identity being solved because that will get gamed. That idea of allocating to labor will get gamed by capital, right? Who will like set up a whole bunch of addresses. And we've seen these games and Fernandez nodding his head because it's frustrating. Like you can try and design these mechanisms earnestly and then they'll get gamed. But like if we could have um, identity where you're provably revealing parts of yourself um, that, you know, make you qualify. Like, let's just say, and, and this is probably a bad example, but like, let's say people who are earning $50,000 a year or less on, you know, their provable tax return, what if they were eligible for like 3x the reward as people who were earning like 100k to 200k a year on their tax return? And like, maybe the people who, who, who are earning 100, 200k, they're probably going to not like that, right? And it's going to become a conversation. But like, I think the conversation needs to be had around like, okay, what are ways that we want to um, compensate people with this capital that we're creating? Um, and then also like, I would say that like, the more you can contribute capital directly to some people who give a lot of time, those, those people will be very loyal if you change their lives. And like one issue that we have right now in crypto is like there's so many people who are just like foaming at the mouth trying to collect every single airdrop they can or like, you know, every single thing they can kind of running around just, you know, collecting, collecting, but they don't actually care. And so like I think it's more impactful for a lot of protocols um, or dApps to allocate deeply and change, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 people's lives than like, you know, have a kind of like meh, like incentivization mechanism for a million people. And so I'd, I'd love to see more of that. Um, and in addition to identity, I think we'll just need more mainstream applications, right? Where like it's speaking to like specific user groups rather than just like crypto as a whole. I am really curious to get your thoughts on this because what I've sort of, I've read something on this basically called like governance mining as opposed to liquidity mining. You're, uh, I forget, something like you're mining for labor, right? And that's kind of a fancy way of saying, instead of paying people for their capital, their liquidity, or you want to pay for their labor. I think the one thing I would say in in defense of sort of yield farming in, in general is that it's simple. And one thing, like it, it was very beautifully simple. And Jason, you and I have used this example before, but like we've had the delightful experience of trying to design sales comp plans. And there's all this temptation to be like very specific about like this little thing, you want to incentivize each little action, but what you 
end up with at the end of this discussions about every action you want to incentivize is a convoluted, complicated mess that no one can really fully understand. So I just I, I view that as like a potential danger a little bit because I'm with you on that we want to specify more specific actions. We don't want this mercenary liquidity that kind of plagued yield farming V1. But on the other hand, I see us being in danger of like overcorrecting there and getting way too specific and making stuff too complicated, especially in an environment in an industry of still mostly engineers, I would say. And then the other thing with when it comes to governance mining, basically getting people to contribute to DAOs, that's something that, yeah, there's more just work involved, right? You need to get individual people to underwrite the quality of each individual contributor. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that word vomit there. It's good pushback. Um, and I mean, the complexity of um, compensating labor versus capital is is why this is an issue, right? Um, because it's also like capital is, is a commodity within these systems, but labor is typically pretty boutique, right? And so then like, and then you, you, you get into this question of like, well, you know, do you just treat all labor equally? Because that's certainly not how wages work. Um, but that said, where labor is treated equally would be like within governance seats within the traditional systems, right? So like each member of Congress or the Senate or whatever, they'll have their base salary. Certainly they earn, you know, like look at Nancy Pelosi and how she trades, like she uses that to her advantage <laughs> to make more money on the side, um, but everyone has a base rate. And so like I could see there being like um, more base labor seats, you know, or of like different tiers. For example, like let's, um, and, and like let's say that there's going to be um, – like the the scooters, you know the uh, the ride sharing teams, like it's like what Lyft has or or whatever. Like, I think that there's a world as we get more of these um, real world applications of crypto or like meat space applications, where like, okay, and, and now we're more in Companyville, where like you have whole fleets or like tiers of labor. Right. And so like you got the people who are going to go and pick up the scooters or the people who are going to maintain the scooters. Right. Or the people who are going to market and maybe marketing is at the company level. But like the if, if you want like kind of this loosely a aggregated or organized uh, swarm of individuals, I think that you can pay them in a combination of potentially like a base rate of dollars to cover their expenses. But then, you know, you can pay them. A token bonus um, that potentially gets juicier, you know, the more that um, they're that they're loyal to that specific protocol, or like, you know, that they like maybe they pick up Slack. Maybe there's even like surge pricing for labor when labor is really needed on the like scooter pickup side. Um, and and I agree like with your original question, Michael, of like okay, you make something too complex and no one uses it or it breaks easily or whatever. And so I don't have um, strong answers for any single use case. Where I do feel strongly is that like the conversation is only being had in certain pockets. And I think it's a very important conversation for us to have because if we only enrich existing capital more and more and more, we're like, the socio-economic change is, or socio-political change is not going to be that great. Hmm. 
Fernando, how do you think about this breakdown of labor? Because like in traditional economics, you have like unskilled labor, semi-skilled labor, you have the skilled labor, then you have like professional labor, like lawyers and doctors. Um, and I mean, Chris is right. Like in crypto, you have this breakdown of that because there's like a lot of anons and you can kind of, but, but obviously different types of labor have to get uh, paid differently. So I'm just, I'm curious how you think about this. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a, a super interesting area with lots of um, potential to like creation of, of innovative things like uh, Chris was, was mentioning the problem of civil attacks, which is uh, a very big problem for um, any, any type of uh, labor kind of uh, compensation. You never know if like it's a it's a one one bot or person like creating lots of accounts. So the identity problem that is being worked on by a lot of people is, is super key. It would allow us also to do some interesting um, experiments with governance, like quadratic voting. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of um, like a lot of innovation coming from uh, identity and, and combating civil attacks. Uh, the, the way the, there's also some smart ways that are already working for labor compensation. Uh, one of them is uh, one that we, we use at Balancer. It's called Coordinate. So it, it's really like a, a smart way for, for people to kind of uh, be recognized for helping each other on, on Discord or for participating on the forum. So every contribution that people make kind of counts points. And if other people give kind of uh, thumbs up, or, or kind of there's like some cross um, um, kind of uh, algorithm that detects who is actually contributing. So there's ways to automate that. Um, and, and we also have grants and like this idea of service providers. So as you, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I, like you, you cannot pay developers. They're super uh, hard to get and, and uh, a very scarce um resource like you, you cannot pay them uh, the same way you would pay people who are just answering uh generic questions on on uh slack or or discord so the, the, you can go to um to grants and then kind of uh, ask to do something and, and people will kind of approve that or not uh, so I, yeah i i think labor is, is super important and like the people that were there in the beginning of the protocol being around and kind of uh helping uh, and onboarding people like i think this is also super important if people just like um don't see that they're being valued so it, it's nice for founders and for people who have been around to be like in the scored answering questions and welcoming people i think this is uh it's important to this this recognition recognition not only um in financial uh wise finance wise uh, one one thing I also wanted to mention is delegation. I think this is kind of uh, uh, one of the answers to Chris's kind of um, question of like how how do we kind of compensate people who don't have a lot of labor, like with recognition. If you um, if you give as a, a big token holder, if you give and you don't have time to follow everything that's happening, if you give your voting power to someone who you see like has good ideas and is kind of defending what you think you would. If you had more time to follow the the project, giving your your voting power to to that person or could be like could be an anon, I think it's a it's a very in, interesting way to align like labor with uh, governance power that would otherwise only be given to capital if you buy a lot of tokens or if you mine um, liquidity. So, but I I do think as you said, uh, Michael, liquidity mining is something that has been um, really like 
groundbreaking, and I think we're, we're, we're going to see it for a long time. And for Balancer, for example, we have this inflation that goes down over time and will eventually fade off like a little bit like, like Bitcoin. And uh, the idea is that we'll, we'll keep like with the, with the treasury, but also with the revenues generated by the protocol, we'll keep um, compensating labor and, and people who are actually giving their time to Balancer as opposed to only the capital. I, I want to make sure we, we cover sort of two, two more big topics here bef before we have to depart, which is one kind of like insider rounds and this thought on like VC, like actually, Chris, I'm, I'm just going to start because you had a great, you had a great tweet, um, great tweet on this. Let me see if I can find it. But I really, I really felt this. Uh, all right. Many knee jerk uh, saying that they won't buy here for X, Y, Z reason. The same people will moan about how VCs get preferential access next expansion when they had equal access this bear. Actually, public market is still even attractively uh, valued as opposed to price, private market of crypto right now. So can you like talk a little bit about, you know, you were just starting to get into this with like, we want to make sure crypto is kind of a force of good and evens, evens things out from a sociopolitical perspective. But can you talk a lot, a little bit about like this whole pushback against VCs and how insider rounds have kind of changed throughout the course of the time sure. you've been in the space? Sure. So I'm definitely going to jump into that one. Just to emphasize that that last part of that tweet, the public markets are more attractively valued than the private markets right now. So, like for anyone listening, keep that in mind. Keep paying attention. In particular, if you're an investor, now is your time. Don't moan at me later. Um, so, I'm just I'm I'm actually really tired That's of your like, public service announcement. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm really tired of like certain characters. Like, I guess people are calling them NPCs now, non-player characters, who just, like, regardless of what the environment is, they're, like, they find things to moan about. And it's, like, well, you know, like, you've, you've got a lot of opportunity right now. Don't tell me that you're going to buy later because you probably won't. Um, so in terms of the insider allocations, I think it's useful to go from Bitcoin to current. And so, like, if you look at, at Bitcoin... Um, you know, I would say it's widely recognized that Satoshi mined about a million BTC, right? Um, which is about 5% of the supply. Um, if you look then next to Ethereum, so uh, 2014 design, you had, by the way, are you guys hearing me all right? Yeah, okay. So you had Ethereum 5% of the supply to the, the, the creating insider. Um, Ethereum 2014-2015, they allocated 12 million units of ETH to the foundation. So there's currently 120 million ETH in supply. So 12 million out of that 120 is 10%, so double BTC. There would be people who would claim, because ETH always gets, you know, uh, like the Bitcoin maxis always get angry about the ETH pre-mine, which refers to 60 million ETH that was sold in a public sale that anyone had access to. I don't actually think of that as like an inside allocation because it was public access. And so like, I guess I, I really should have defined these things. I think of inside allocation is like, you need a privileged seat at the table. And it tends to be the creators and the investors who support the creators in that process before the thing is actually liquid or even a reality. So like everyone who's an insider, yes, they get a privileged seat at the table, but they also all run the risk of zero. Um, before the, the, the thing is actually created or liquid. And then the permissionless public, you know, 
like there's no privileged access and there's much less risk of, of zero. So you had ETH at 10%. Um, then in 2017, I would say we started to get a lot of experimentation with ICOs um, where you, you started to have variation, I would say of like 20 to 50% um, take by insiders to, to fund the protocol. And then 2021, that bled even more and we're now getting to a place where even though like the way that it's marketed or communicated um, is is massaged, let's say to be polite, like basically 100% is going to insiders or being like top down allocated by insiders. And this is where like as crypto gets more mainstream and more corporate and whatever and like indoctrinated with say some of or more invaded with some of the ideals that come from the traditional world. People will just be like, well, let's just take, you know, 100% of the supply and we'll know how, how, how to allocate this better than anyone else. I, I very strongly disagree um, with that view of like allocate 100% to insiders um, because I think that like insiders can't help but be biased, right? And like there's this very human tendency when you control a lot of capital and resources to just allocate more and more to yourself. And so like to break that cycle you have to allocate it um, to the, the permissionless public or what we could think of traditionally as, as outsiders. Right now, within Ethereum, I would say like the good guy norm, good guy and girl norm, is um, 40% goes to insiders and 60% is reserved for the permissionless public. So you have one and a half X the supply going to the permissionless public over... Um, the insiders, and again, that insiders includes like the core team, the investors, and like really the treasury to fund the evolution of the protocol. Um, how that 60% is, is used and communicated, there's tons of variability, right? And you really have to look closely because sometimes like it's, it's, you know, again, it's massaged um, in terms of how it's communicated. But um, I, I at a minimum think that like, or, or, or like the minimum tolerable or, or you could also say maximum tolerable extraction is a 50-50 split insider-outsider. I prefer more for the outsiders than the insiders. The only caveat to this that I'd say, because um, I wrote a piece on this called The Original Sin, um, is because of this normative shift where teams are taking more for the insiders and that also in large part can be used to fund the protocol evolution, if not enough is taken, then you may not have enough of a war chest to outcompete, you know, greedier competitors. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a, a tricky conundrum. The other thing that happens, or like one model, and, you know, we've spoken about this uh, with Balancer, and like, I know like Synthetics explored it. Like, there is a world where you don't have like an excess supply creation you just actually create the supply that you need so so you wouldn't have like a fully diluted say overhang you would just have the circulating supply and then you could issue on like an annual or every three-year basis more tokens as needed to cover costs right and so this would be much more similar to say how a company would work right in terms of stock-based comp we have this very archaic system that's all based around Bitcoin, which is there's this... The total supply. 
there's this yeah. total supply of 21 million. So then if you look, like we learned so much from Bitcoin and there's actually one of the earlier episodes of this season was with Hasu talking about like maybe some of the wrong things that we learned from Bitcoin and ETH. But that seems like, I mean, Mike and I talk about this all the time. We learned this from Bitcoin, therefore like fixed supply. Therefore, everything that has come since Bitcoin has had a fixed supply. And I do wonder if in the next cycle, like people maybe get away with, get away from that and look at traditional traditional startup fundraising as a, as a more, yeah. as, as a better model here. So I, I think it's, I think you're, you're correct. You're directionally correct in that fixed supply assets are a rarity, um, like total anomaly within the traditional system and their inflexibility can be a weakness if you're not trying to build something like what Bitcoin's trying to build. And Bitcoin's like a very specific thing for the world. Um, and, most other things are not that they're they're much more a type of um, capital than they are you know a commodity like store of value which is what what Bitcoin is and so now the the tough thing is when you have like if we go back to a DAO structure and you have this like very um, biodiverse set of participants it can become chaotic in a bear market in the time when you like need most organization and like most clarity and most, you know, uh, conviction in a single direction. And you also need to spend. And the thing that I don't like that I see a lot is like communities become very penny pinching when they need to, they actually need to spend most. And they're like least penny pinching when they should actually be like saving up for that future rainy day. Right. So like if you look at Dow spends, like crazy spends get approved in a bull market and then like fractions of that spend will get shot down in the bear market on much more important things. And so that's one thing that we haven't solved for yet if we were to go to this model, because I'd be afraid that like some Dow's would get choked out basically in bear markets or they wouldn't be able to create because people are like, oh, we can't suffer the dilution. We're already down 90 percent. And it's like, well, you're going to be down 100% if like this thing doesn't keep evolving, right? Um, and one thing that like the creation of total supply enables is like a buffer to continue spending. On the flip side, it can lead to like a lack of discipline because there's like such a big balance sheet, right? That like takes a while for people to realize that it's actually finite. I mean, really, the <laughs> The problem that you're talking about, though, of like, oh, we have to dilute more at the bottom. That's the problem that companies are face like face today, not in crypto is like that. What you're really talking about is being conservative at the top and aggressive at the bottom and having enough like of a, of a treasury management, like a good treasury management solution so that when shit does hit the fan, you don't have to go race to raise another capital. But as we're seeing today, like while we're at the bottom, not even in crypto, there are a lot of companies that are like, oh crap, I didn't manage my treasuries correctly. Let me go race. I need to, I'm going to go dilute myself so that I can stay alive and I can compete and I can hire talent. And it's like, yeah, that's just, there's just the sacrifice you have to make for not man managing your treasury correctly. One, one thing I, I, I'd add though, is that um, the perception of a, a token that can mint infinite new tokens is, like super important. Like if, if, if a, someone is considering two tokens and the two protocols are very similar, they're like, they have the same amount of users, adding the same amount of value. One can infinitely, infinitely mint tokens and the other cannot has like a, a fixed supply for the next, I don't know, 
um, uh, all years to, to, to fund itself. Investors and people, anyone would, would buy the one that has a fixed supply because you don't know how like governance might uh, react in the future. You don't know if there could be some attack that uh, takes over governance and uses that infinite minting power to create a lot of tokens uh, and, and transfer that to themselves. So I think the, um, the kind of a certainty that that protocol doesn't have the technical ability to create new tokens and dilute everyone else who thought they would be um, buying into like this supply, but actually now it's double as much out of the blue. Um, you can always like do a fork, right? You can always create a new contract and then allow it to, to mean new tokens, but not without a lot of hassle like to do to do a fork. So I, I think mm. the my preference for a fixed supply is really because of like the certainty that anyone like participating in that ecosystem that they're not going to be diluted to to zero if some crazy unknown unknown in the future happens. I think the last place that I want to go here to to think about and before we think about wrapping this up is just around this concept of returning capital to shareholders. Um, like right now you're seeing, uh, I think just in bear markets, you see a preference towards like cash flowing protocols. Although I guess this might be the first bear market we've really had that. But um, there's this whole conversation around like Uniswap turning on the fee switch, obviously. Um, how do you guys think about I guess when I look at that, I'm like, okay, I see why we're having that conversation, but also in traditional markets, it would be pretty absurd to request to go to a startup that was like three years out and request them to start returning capital to shareholders. Like the most productive use of capital is to like R&D and to like build more. And then like maybe beyond that, it, you could like do some acquisitions. Like the last thing that you want to do for a startup is to return capital to shareholders. And that's something that we frequently ask of, of protocols these days, especially in this market. So I'm curious to get both your takes on how you think about returning capital to shareholders. And are we, are we asking these protocols to do it at an appropriate time? Well, so that fixation is that penny pinching mentality, right? Mm. Of like, you got to give me my money back now mm. when they should actually most be reinvesting it in the opportunity. Right. And so that's right. like one of the perverse things I think of like, we could just call it more junior management or more short sighted management um, that can sometimes come up from like a short sighted community's preference. And that's not me trying to slander Uniswap like I see it across the board. Right. Um, and this is also like the way that having too speculative of an ecosystem can bite where like people are just too focused on the, the, the short term. So. I think I think that like the fixation on it is is not you know the highest leverage thing that communities could be doing in the spare market, um, and that like actually like improving you know if you're developer focused you know improving the tooling, educating teams, getting more teams building on you so that you ultimately have more cool products that are leveraging your underlying infrastructure when things are booming in a few years time that's a much higher leverage way to spend a dollar than to like give it back to someone who's like disgruntled and probably going to go and sell it anyway. Right. Um, or like, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how uni plans to like, um, or how, how the fee switch will exactly accrue to uh, uni token holders. But um, I very firmly do believe that like now is the time to be investing in the opportunity. Anyone who is, um, has a long-term vision will be aligned with that and is not going to be focused on like trying to maximize their dollars extracted at this point in time. 
I think the balancer has a, a really um, has has kind of struck a really good trade off uh, between giving back to token holders and invest reinvesting in like growth and and creation for the ecosystem. We have um, the the same tokenomics as Curve, like this vote escrow token. So first, only the, the people who are really like escrowing their tokens, um, they're getting something. Passive BAL holders are not getting anything, right? So you have to um, lock your tokens for up to a year to be able to vote, to get your share of uh, revenues of the protocol. And 75% of the revenues go to um, to those kind of, uh, we, we, we call VE BAL holders. And 25% goes to the treasury of, of the DAO, where the DAO then discusses, should it go to grants or service providers or coordinate um, in, in, in order to really like keep growing the, the ecosystem and, and innovating. So um, you, you need also, in my opinion, some stability for, um, for people to build on top of your protocol. Like Balancer has Aura, has Tattoo, has lots of different protocols. It, it's not just token holders that want to see their, their tokens back because they're short, uh, short-sighted. It's really long-term uh, oriented protocols that need that income to make their own protocols built on top of Balancer to be sustainable. So it's not really it, it's it's not really just people who want their money back because they invested. It's it's things that are getting built on top that need this kind of uh, stability and not for those percentages seventy five twenty five to be changing uh, every now and then. So it yeah it's it's a complex kind of trade off. But I think Balancer has found a very very good balance there. Actually, I think there's one more thing I want to get your take on, Fernando. Maybe I can throw this one to you, or I guess I'll get I want to get both your takes on this from the builder side of things and from the investor side of things. How do you think about um, just this idea of building moats in crypto? Um, and it's a problem I think a lot of folks haven't had to deal with before. A lot of the founders in crypto and even the investors in crypto have never had to, to deal with and think about is like, uh, it's just a different environment, right? Building in like an open, fully open source environment. So I'm, Fernando, how do you think about as a, as a founder and as a builder, like just the, this idea of building moats? It's definitely hard to build moats and like, keep your edge competitive edge if you're doing things always in the open and creating open source software which is our case like all, everything we create is open source and people can fork it um so we we believe that it's it's really the like the words that chris uh, mentioned at the beginning it's the independent dependence so lots of different protocols and teams that are dependent on balancer because like not dependent in the in a bad sense like they use us as um, as one of the dependencies, like uh, as in code, you know, you import balancers NPN package, and uh, you can always like exchange that, like replace that for a fork. But a fork might have some changes, and the interface is not the same. So there's always some work to be done if you want to replace balancer for a fork or for a competitor. Um, so the the idea of a mode for us as infrastructure is the more protocols build on top of balancer. Um, the, the harder it is for someone else to create a thriving ecosystem like we have where there's a lot of liquidity in that, in that uh, one single vault where my protocol can, uh, can benefit from, uh, even if it's, it's not my liquidity, but I'm actually doing a multi-hop that uses ETHDAI liquidity from this other protocol that's also using my, my vault. So uh, it's capital that's being accumulated and, and kind of there's some uh, network effects there. But it's also the idea of like um, a lot of people are using our tools, our smart contracts, our SDK. So even though we're all open source, it's hard for someone forking balancer to convince each one of those independent dependents. They don't know each other. 
it, it, it's not kind of uh, something that they can coordinate and move all to this other competitor because of a small percentage kind of drop in the fees if we charge any. So I, I think that's how we should look at moats uh, for, for infrastructure in this open source space. Chris, do you see things in the same way? So definitely on the infrastructure side, um, independent dependence is the thing that we really focus on. Um, because just, just to um, draw that out a bit more, when you have so many different teams relying upon a protocol, be it Balancer or Ethereum or like any of the uh, major protocols out there, they have to like all leave together to get that same combinatorial combinatorial utility. So they they all start feeding each other, and you know this is often talked about through composability as well. Um, so on the infrastructure side, for sure, I think on the token side, um, I think there is a wealth loyalty moat. So like having gone through like the very early rise of Bitcoin with the Bitcoiners or the very really early rise of Ethereum with the Ethereans or like, you know, also observing, you know, Adam and soul. Um, there are, as you rise with a, with a protocol, um, you become increasingly loyal to it, especially if it becomes material or potentially changes your life. Right. And so like, this is something that I'm probably seeing most acutely within the Solana ecosystem right now where Solana had such a crazy rise last year. Not, I mean, some people took profits, but a lot of people didn't take as much profits as they probably should have. And so now there's like this loyalty that they all have to the protocol, right? Both because of like some of the core values that they believe in, but also because they know how valuable it can be and they want to get it back to that place, right? Um, and ETH went through the same thing in 18 and 19, when people were shocked that it went from 1500 to 80 bucks. Right. Um, and so that's, that's a real one, um, that, that I see. Um, I would say on the consumer side, it's going to be more of the traditional things that we would think of, like j just in terms of like, um, um, when you're treated well, you're likely to keep going back. Or like if a brand doesn't give you a reason to leave, your default is to stay. That said, what's great about crypto, and this is where the consumer wins, um, because you can always opt out, or like we work with Zerion, right? But there's also Zapper, or there's other you know examples that do relatively similar things, and you can just you know connect your MetaMask or whatever wallet you're using and go from Zerion to Zapper to XYZ and get you know different views of the same data, and so that ability to opt out easily protects the consumer because it means that brands need to behave better. Um, whereas like in the traditional system where moats are easier to build, the consumer gets fucked over more. And so I see like the difficulty of building moats at the consumer level actually means that the consumer will win and that brands will have to behave better. Yeah. This has been a great conversation, guys. Uh, I don't know if Chris, you have anything left to add, Fernando? Anything on your end too? No, I feel full. I'll give Fernando Good. the last word. No, yeah, I think the conversation has been amazing. Um, yeah, maybe on the on the last topic that Chris was touching on, I think the the, the, the same is true for uh, infrastructure. So if you if you see like the new like crazy protocols that are kind of putting new things out there, and then you see people building on top of them or using them, getting hacked, and you really need some Lindy effect if your infrastructure. So our, our utmost 
kind of important uh, thing is, is security. So we've been around since the early days of like the DeFi summer and, and even before that. So I think uh, also for for infrastructure, this idea of like being around for a long time and being trusted, not being just like new um, like trend is is super important. So it, it's also part of the of the mode for infrastructure protocols like Balancer. But uh, I also yeah feel full and I, I think we talked about a lot of uh, cool stuff. Thanks for inviting us. You know, Chris, I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah. No, Balancer is here to stay. That's all. <laughs> Actually, Fernando, I think I've been thinking more and more about that. Is uh, just lint. It's not just Lindy with protocols. It's like. Uh, the most important thing I, I remember like month two of Blockworks, four and a half years ago, we had uh, just like an advisor tell us like the only thing you need to do is survive, especially in, a, in an industry that's going up, but is incredibly volatile. You just need to survive. You don't need to be the best. You just need to survive. And even like, I mean, we're seeing other media companies going down. You're seeing protocol struggle. You're seeing it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good advice. So yeah. Anyways, guys. So, <laughs> So related to that, sorry, we keep going here, but one of our favorite LPs told us um, very similar advice. He said, um, there are those who take themselves out, those who get taken out, and all you need to do is survive. It's good advice. So prescient with this market. Awesome. So awesome, Chris and Fernando. This is awesome. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys soon. Thanks, Jason. Thank yeah. you. Bye-bye. All right, buddy. What'd you think? Good app. Really good app. Um, one of the best of the season in my mind. I really like the discussion around fee preference and how, what is the preference of users going to be and, and how fees get extracted in crypto. And I've kind of thought this for a little while, but I, I really thought this walking away from the episode is that people like the Uniswap fee switch discussion is a little bit of a red herring probably because at the end of the day, that's not how these protocols are going to monetize. The way that they're going to monetize is say, Hey, it's free to like, use and trade on this protocol but then underneath you have validators that are basically ordering the transactions and profiting that way and even if there's probably an order of magnitude more fees that are going to get extracted through that process which is mev but ultimately for the casual even the professional user even though you know it's going on to not pay that that fee up front is going to be meaningful i think so i i just think mev is going to be the way that fees get extracted and crypto yeah i i think it's becoming pretty clear that DeFi is going to end up looking i don't know it's going to end up looking like traditional capital markets with one with one difference which is the biggest difference which is that it's better for consumers uh because the switching costs are lower like i think a lot of things that you saw in traditional capital markets brokerages taking fees down to zero that's going to happen in in DeFi, um and and even in CFI like coinbase and stuff too um there will be fees, but there'll be hidden fees like payment for order flow. That's going to be MEV and DeFi. I think it's going to look very, we're realizing that like, you don't really have to reinvent the wheel. It's going to look very similar. Um, it, it reminds me of, uh, there's this quote about the iPhone about like new technology is usually, is usually like worse in a lot of different elements or, or it's the same except for one tiny difference. And um, it's like the iPhone, you could have a computer in your pocket. It was like smaller, it was slower, but you could have a computer in your pocket. Um, and like with DeFi, it feels like you're kind of reinventing all the things or you're, you're actually, we're realizing that you should kind of just copy a lot of the things from traditional capital markets, except for the fact that you should have easier switching costs. Uh, it should be easier to switch. And it's a fundamentally open system as opposed to a fundamentally closed one. That I think I think that's kind of like it's permissionless and anyone can interact with it, even if there ends up being 
KYC or large swaths uh, of it that are KYC. I also think there are implications for the app chain thesis versus generalized protocols. I, I, I mean, we started to get into that a little bit when Chris was talking about MEB that's going on in the Cosmos ecosystem, but being able to customize at the execution layer, Osmosis, shout out to Sonny and what those guys are doing over there. But yeah, being able to do something custom, like we'll slash you if you're a staker and you're in, you're doing sandwich attacks in, in our ecosystem. You cannot, you can't do that as far as I'm aware on in the ETH ecosystem. So yeah, I think they're going to be, yeah, good point. People will want customizability at that level. So it's, it's just a way to generate alpha, I think, and create yeah. a better user experience. Um, what else was, what other takeaways did you have from this episode? Yeah, I thought the discussion around yield oh, farming the, the, and how that's going to yeah. evolve from yield farming yeah. to governance farm. I forget what he, and the whole discussion around Moving labor from capital, capital to labor. Chris's yeah. idea from it, it, I think he, it's not a fully flat, uh, like fleshed out, baked out idea yet, but I like where he's headed with it, which is if you just basically rebuild a system that, um, rewards capital, you're rebuilding a lot of what we already have and that it's, it, we, we should be experimenting with rewarding labor. It didn't feel, I, I think, I think you had a good pushback there and I think, uh, it didn't feel like a fully baked out thesis yet, but I, I like where he's headed with it. The push-pull of labor versus capital is something that plays out over economic cycles in the real world. And it, right. and it plays out over and we just thought the last couple of years were a perfect example of the push and pull Swing between back. labor and capital. Yeah. So I think like zooming out of that frame and zooming way in on what do these protocols need? How are they going to grow? I think there's a very strong argument to be made that they just need people actually contributing and building stuff and marketing it and all that kind of stuff as that's much more valuable than just liquidity on a platform, which people are just looking to, to dump. I, I think the, the one thing I'll say in defense of yield farming, which I kind of said on this episode is it's very simple, but the thing that sucks about it is it just doesn't really work anymore. <laughs> I, I don't think it's gonna, I don't think it's gonna work much anymore. So they, yeah, they're gonna have to tweak it a little bit. We didn't talk about lockups. I, I think you could probably solve an enormous part of the problem with yield farming by simply distributing locked up Lock tokens token? uh, well ve yeah. ve, VE kind of tried to do that yeah yeah ve uh, there there are benefit there there are interesting so there's a you can go back and there's this old episode of invest like the best that uh, where ted sides goes on and talks about what are the alignment misincentives of allocating capital between like institutional allocators and general managers and they're sort of trying to play around with this idea that like how do you reward the people that stick with you through multiple cycles because as a as a gp as a as a partner at like a hedge fund or something the you you kind of have to do short-term decision making because you can't have a long-term investment no one's going to let you lose money for three years because oh i'll make it back on my fifth or sixth year even if that's the correct investment strategy but mm -hmm. so they were kind of trying to figure out a way to bridge the incentive gap and they were hypothesizing around a side pocket vehicle which was like, let's say you're an LP and you're like, I'm going to back this GP for the next 10 years. And in, and the way that I'm going to be incentivized to not bail when maybe their strategy goes poorly for like three years is there's going to be this little side pocket that we'll contribute to. And it's like a loyalty program. And that's what I heard Chris saying when he was talking about, you hmm. know, VE. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just one of those cool, it's very difficult to predict when you when you're able to get more creative around mechanism design some of the cool things that people will experiment with and i'm, I'm hopeful that we see some of that stuff 
moving forward. Because yeah. you do, we do, we need labor. I think more than new capital. Yeah, I think also his dis- uh, this is where I cut out a little bit right at the end, but. I think there is this wrong idea in crypto and it starts with an assumption. There are two assumptions that I think we get in trouble with. One, everything should be based on Bitcoin, you know, which is fixed hard cap, fixed supply. And even that's probably going to have to change. I know that's, you know, crazy to say, but I'm pretty sure that they're going to have to remove the hard cap fixed supply too. But (laughs) I I think they will. Uh, I don't think, the security model works if it's just based on transaction fees. But but uh, it, it, it definitely doesn't make sense for protocols that are more company-like, more equity-like in their structure. And I also think there's this other core belief in crypto, which is if I was early, I deserve to keep getting rewarded passively. And I just do not think that that's the case. I think that sets out a lot of the problems. Mm-hmm. Like I got here early. Yeah. No inflation schedule because I correctly picked this, so I don't want to get diluted by all you, you know, you people who are jumping on one cycle later than me. And I just don't think it's the correct view. The view should be you actively have to keep contributing to keep your pro rata stake and and defect against inflation that way. And I'd like a smaller piece of a bigger pie. That 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 I think I think Equity Land largely has that right. I think a lot of these protocols, you know, Chris made a good distinction between a protocol versus a company. But I think some of them, uh, I, I think it, the the lesson about dilution is correct in yeah. equity land. Yeah. I mean, another, like similar similar to the, the beginning of the conversation, we were comparing um, what happens in traditional capital markets and with brokerages taking fees down to zero and payment for order flow exists in capital markets. And then in crypto, we have MEV. Similar conversation at the end of the uh, the episode about how like maybe what exists in traditional startup land is like a better model than what exists in token land right now. Um, And I think that uh, there's probably a lot of operators and investors in crypto who are learning that some of these models, some of these things and like the ways that things, the way, the reason we do things in traditional markets is like, is because these things have been baked out over time and we've, we've made a lot of errors over hundreds of years and, and have landed on these models. So here's, I think it's a super simple thing. It's if you can issue more tokens and for whatever you get for issuing those tokens is higher than the cost of dilution, you have, you've created value. Like if you, if you have to issue a million dollar tranche of new equity, but for in return for that, you get skilled labor or whatever by skilled labor that's going to create more enterprise value than a million dollars. Let's say it creates $1.5 million worth of enterprise value. That's a 50%, you know, return on your capital. So there you go. I, I, that, I think that's, it, it's as simple as the calculation needs to be. Any other takeaways? Too early to be returning capital to token holders. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love that take by both of them. And I agree with that. You would never ask a startup that's three years old in traditional startup land to give dividends. Like, why are we asking all these protocols to return capital to shareholders? Go invest that in R&D and build. I much prefer these discussions, by the way. This is, these bear market discussions are so much better than bull market and like, what's this next thing gonna, it's all, it. this is so much better. Honestly, I just, these, these are real like, you know, company building or protocol building or industry building type discussions. The one thing that I think is an interesting problem, now everyone is within, because it's a problem at hand, how do I extend my runway, make sure that my assets exceed my liabilities and just survive as a company? 
there's a very interesting other problem in bull markets, which we didn't really get to, but here's another problem. Let's say tomorrow you have a billion dollars to spend. What do you spend it on? You have too much capital to spend. Like in, there was a period, like even Uniswap still in its Dow treasury has like $2 billion. That's, that's crazy. Then it becomes the other problem. It's like, I have too much capital and I don't have enough profitable places to allocate it. So that's why I think you started to see at the end of this bull market, every crypto protocol was trying to do everything because I have all this money and I don't want to just sit on it and have it be useless here. But really the best thing they could have did was just trade that into USDC. Yeah. And sit on it. <laughs> yeah. Also, you dropped out at this at the end, but actually the really the most important thing anyone can do is just Lindy. Stick stick around. Survive. Survive. Good yeah. message at the end by both Fernando and Chris. So Anyways, guys, hope you enjoyed this. We have one more episode of the season uh, coming up next week. And then Mike and I will do a big recap episode with our takeaways from the season. So I hope you guys have been enjoying the, uh, the season so far. And see you next week. Cheers.